Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Can imagination have more concrete reality than our daily lives? Is it possible that we really are at the center of the universe? What does it all mean for the paranormal? Hello and welcome to the 339th broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. So we have a really mind-bending show for you this evening. Uh, But before we introduce our guest, let's get to our weekly paranormal contest. So last week's question was, in Jewish folklore, what is the name for a humanoid being made from inanimate material? Well, Indira Makris of Grand Junction, Colorado, was the first to answer that question correctly. And the answer was, the Gollum. It's not... Not 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 a golem from Lord of the Rings. Golem with an E, not not a U. Right. So anyway, this week's question is: Where in Canada would you find a haunted trolley car inside a restaurant? So be first to get that right and win a copy of Footsteps in the Attic, my dad's most popular book. Now call us locally from anywhere at four zero one seven six six one two four zero, or from anywhere in the U.S. at eight hundred four four nine one two four zero. If nobody answers the question during the show and you'd still like to give it a shot, drop us an email at paul at behindtheparanormal.com or ben at behindtheparanormal.com. Now to our guest. Patrick Harper could be described as an insatiable seeker after meaning, my words, but briefly, in his words, quote, I left school, traveled in Africa, went to Cambridge University, then did part-time jobs to fund my quest for truth. Reading Carl uh, C.J. Jung was a turning point. Did five years in publishing and at age 32 became a writer, publishing two novels before embarking on my attempt to get to grips with what we might call the Western esoteric tradition. My interim reports on this quest have come out in four books. The first, an account of alchemy, is Mercurius or The Marriage of Heaven and Earth. The second is about apparitions, visions, and otherworldly journeys, and it's called Demonic Reality, a field guide to the other world. The third is a history of the imagination, the philosopher's secret file, and the latest is the secret tradition of the soul. Uh, that's the U.S. Uh, edition. In the U.K., it's called, rather ambitiously, a complete guide to the soul. Patrick lives in West Dorset, England, one of the most beautiful places I've, I've ever been. So, Patrick Harper, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Very good. Yeah, we've uh, rigged up some technicalities here to get the overseas call, and thanks for staying up so late. It's 11 o'clock where you are. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, I've had some strong coffee. I'm ready to rock. All right. So, Patrick Harper, you asked asked us not to ask you what the soul is uh, because it took a whole book for you to answer it. So, what is the secret tradition of the soul? Well, um, it, it's, a, it's a strange tradition, you know, it's a secret tradition, but it's a kind of an open secret, you know, it, it's, it's been hidden, really. Um, you know, I've had the um, best education money can buy, but it was never even mentioned at school, and that's part of its excitement, really, you have to kind of seek it out for yourself. It's not a philosophy, really, it's not a religion, but it does have a philosophical and spiritual side. Um, it's not even a system of thought. It's more like a, a way of seeing the world, or better still, a way of imagining the world. In fact, some people call it the imaginative tradition. You know, a traditional culture would probably call it a shamanic tradition and so on. 
And as you'd expect, this, this tradition has, in, in the history of Western culture at least, been pushed underground. You, you know, first of all, it was declared heretical by Christianity. And then, once again, by, after about 1600 or so, the modern scientific way of thinking rose up and either ignored this tradition or ridiculed it, you know, wrote it up as crazy or, or maybe at best as superstition. But uh, it's neither of these things. And in fact, um, I could probably, you could probably demonstrate that it's not these things because it's worth mentioning, I think, for that, that there have been at least three periods in history, in the history of the West, that is, when, when this very tradition has kind of surged up and broken the surface of orthodoxy and itself become the orthodoxy, has become mainstream and so on. I could tell you which those periods are, if you like. Yes, please do, because we're, we were wondering when in history... Yeah, you, you already started to answer the next question, so... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, when did we start to lose this, or, or did we lose it? Is it buried in the baggage that is carried in our spiritual traditions? Uh, well, it, it, you know, you can't, it, it can't die out, you know, because it's a, it, it, it is an immortal tradition and so on, and it's still carried on today, of course. But it, I suppose it became the orthodoxy. Um, it, it's very much underground at the moment. But it became orthodoxy, first, first of all, um, quite early on, in, in about, in the early centuries after Christ, um, when, when you got a fantastic culture springing up in Alexandria, in Egypt, which was a Greek-speaking culture, and it had all these wonderful sort of um, groups and sects and beliefs, Gnostics and Hermetic philosophers and Stoics and so on. The chief among them was probably the Neoplatonists, that is, mm. followers, of, followers of the great Greek philosopher of Plato, who'd lived 500 years before, especially one called Plotinus, and so on. Uh, and they were more or less the orthodox way of thinking uh, in the ancient world at that time. Amongst these groups, of course, were the Christians. Um, they were still just a minority group at the time. But, of course, by about... 330, they'd, they'd become the official religion of the Roman Empire, and all these other pagan sects, like the Neoplatonists, which are so dear to my heart, were declared <laughs> heretical. So they went underground, and all the Greek learning was completely lost for a thousand years. The West just didn't have it. Um, it, it disappeared. It was preserved amongst the Arabs, but, um, but it was lost. But it was rediscovered again in the Renaissance, in... in, in 15th century Italy. Uh, that's when the, uh, the forgotten Greek authors, especially people like Plotinus and Plato, were discovered again, and they occasioned yet another great sort of flowering of imaginative life, and so on. This is directly traceable to one man, a man called Marsilio Ficino, who started up an academy in Florence in Italy kind of in imitation of Plato's original academy in, in Athens all those centuries before. And he was a translator and interpreter of Greek thought, and it became all the rage in Europe and influenced all the great artists that we think of when we think of the Renaissance, Michelangelo and Leonardo and people like that. Of course, inevitably then, um, 
you know, the new modern way of thinking rose up, you know, after about 1600, and this tradition was pushed underground yet again. But you couldn't keep it down. It kind of surged up again amongst the romantics, um, the romantics who espoused imagination. I ought to emphasize that this tradition, one of its hallmarks is, is that it believes that the, it believes that soul is central to everything and that the chief faculty of, of the soul is not, for instance, reason, as, as the enlightened would say, mm-hmm. or as Christians would say, the rational soul, but imagination and so on. And that's why it surged up again with the romantics, with the German philosophers, and then above all with the English poets. Um, Blake and Shelley and Keats and Wordsworth and Coleridge, especially Coleridge, and even in up until the 20th century, Yeats, W.B. Yeats, the great Irish poet, was the last great Romantic poet. I ought to mention too that that perhaps the greatest, the last of the, of, of the last um, person to really expound this tradition was C.G. Jung, the great depth psychologist. And, and his followers, people like James Hillman over there in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we've got to. And I, I regard myself as a very, very humble link in in what the alchemists call this golden chain. Well, well, but the uh, alchemists who kept this tradition alive for 500 years when it was gone underground. Well, certainly a very articulate one. You, you've touched on something that we, oddly enough, run and I began to run into 42 years ago when I started paranormal research and that is the problem of what for the for those of, out there who aren't don't have philosophy degrees uh, dualism the, the issue of essentially the war at least in western christian circles and, and west western thinking in general the war between matter and spirit I suppose we could say, and one of the leaders being Rene Descartes, of course, n- not one of our favorite people, no, <laughs> the founder no, of no, dualism. No, no, no. Yeah, exactly. And uh, what very few people realize that uh, we always get into not well lively debates with with people of of the caliber of uh, our guest today, Patrick Harper, and they'll say, well, you know, you can't really argue with Descartes because you know he he came up with the the fundamental. Uh, formula for knowledge. I think, therefore, I am. And but it, you know, toward the end of his life, actually on his deathbed, he said even that wasn't good enough. We really don't know anything. Hence, the motto of this show: Everything you know is wrong. Okay, uh, yeah, there may be yeah. a bit of an exaggeration, but but we constantly run into the the problem in paranormal research of people assuming that say you know on, on that level, ghosts are spirits of the dead. We don't know any such thing. How can a spirit have the full consciousness of an entire being? You know, and questions like that we always ask. Everybody goes, huh, what? Uh, so, I mean, you can see where uh, perhaps even on, on the level that we're operating, Patrick, that the issues you, have, you have, have brought up that have vexed human thinking forever, pretty much, are, are still present, uh, even on, on that level, and therefore implying that it's present on, on every level of human life today, that, that people have a false view of reality. Yes, yeah, I, I mean, I think that the, the paranormal level is a very important level. And I think the Neoplatonists, who are at the root of my tradition, have much to say about this, because they believe that, um, that, the, that whole, the whole universe was really made of soul stuff. And, mm-hmm. it, and the idea of soul, they believe that the, the world had a soul. 
which they called the soul of the world, which is a very beautiful idea. Yes. And it's essentially an intellectual version of what all traditional cultures believe, all animist cultures. They believe that, that what we now think of as an inanimate world was in fact animate from the Latin anima, meaning a soul, that everything had souls, and that, that, and that the souls of natural things were, um, they called them daimons or daemons, not to be confused with demons, yes. which is what Christians turned them into. And it was these diamonds that you could see uh, and, and that, that appeared to you in visions and apparitions. And of course, the interesting thing about these diamonds is that they weren't spirits. Um, it's, all tribal cultures believe in diamonds, but the anthropologists have confused us by calling them spirits, which implies that they're kind of ethereal. But the diamonds had a material side to them. They were both. They were completely paradoxical creatures. They mm -hmm. were... They were always both spiritual and material. So, you know, like any like any occupant of a UFO, they could give you a nasty blast, you know, <laughs> and you could feel the physical effects. But at the same time, then they were suddenly gone. You know, that, that you couldn't pin them down. Exactly. Yeah. They were elusive, marginal, shape-shifting creatures, you know, and um, they played an absolute, absolutely crucial part in, in the neoplatonic scheme of things because they connected us to the gods or rather they may well have them, themselves been the faces that the gods show to us as it were yes well this is what we run into all the time the physical effects are striking the old spiritualist ideas are not good enough and we, we constantly run into quote unquote ghosts and we spend years on projects and it all, lately, it's been leading us right into "quote unquote" UFOs and the, the Greys and all the you know, whatever labels you want to put on these these things. And um, the only possible explana explanation, I would think, is is a is a is a complete wholeness and unity to the entire fabric of reality. Well, as dysfunctional as it may seem, it is. Um, what's what? It, it is harmonious in its own right. I mean, it's even, elegant in a very disheveled kind of way yeah yeah i mean there's always some sort of element of harmony you need the good with the bad and even if things seem horrible there's always good to it so your suggestion patrick is that the world around us is not what our five senses tell us necessarily that's it. well absolutely absolutely not yeah. <laughs> unfortunately that no. you know well, for, that, well, I, perhaps that, fortunately that, depends on what you see well, fortunately you. Yes, yeah but uh I mean, I, I just go along with what all traditional cultures have always believed and which our own culture believed before Descartes and dualism and so on, which mm -hmm. is, is that that we are part of the universe, that we that we participate in it, and that universe is ensouled and and indeed is in full is full of um, daimonic creatures, but they are not beings of you know. I mean, they're constantly contradicting themselves. For instance, I mean, I live very. I mean, my tradition is Irish because my father was Irish, and he himself saw Irish fairies for instance <coughs> but you know they're not just beings of um that are benign they're also they can also be malign as well oh, that's yes. another contradiction they have very much so yeah. but we have to we have to come to terms with the fact that the universe isn't quite as we've been taught you know that it isn't kind of that we've tended to divide it and polarize it into angels and demons but the old the old demons were both these things were both angelic and sometimes well, they were never diabolic, I have to say, but they could be very mischievous and tricky. They're tricksters. 
mm-hmm. you know, and shapeshifters. And so it's very hard to pin them down. And, um, well, I attempted to grapple with these creatures in my book, Daimonic Reality, you know, which I talk about at all kinds of, of uh, visions and apparitions and other world journeys <coughs> from, you know, from traditional but from the traditional daemons of Europe, the elves and the trolls and the fairies, all the way up to UFOs and little grey aliens and abductions and so on. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's it. I, unfortunately, you know, I'm very much looking forward to reading the book. We didn't have a chance to do so uh, with all the, the sort of dualistic dishevelment in our yeah yeah our it, it's, schedule. It's been a it's been a it's been a rough week. But but I have been reading. Uh, Graham Hancock is a, a friend of ours and has been on the show several <coughs> times. And he uh, he suggests that people discover. Uh, I think he thinks very much along the, some of the lines you do. He suggests that, uh, and I hate to bring it up almost because of the the trouble with this this subject, but um, that, that hallucinogenic drugs or plants may have been responsible, at least in part, for the birth of the shamanic phenomena, of the shamanic class of, of people 20 to 40 to 50,000 years ago, or maybe even longer, who began to discover what is a reality that we've been talking about, but sort of proved the door. Do you subscribe to that at all? Um, well, I wouldn't be dogmatic about it, because, you know, there are many ways of entering the other world, and... Um, you know, in South America, they favor all kinds of hallucinogenic drugs. That's their system. But in um, Siberia and Mongolia, they don't. They prefer to dance and drum and sing, you mm-hmm. know. Yes, yes. And uh, But, you know, you can equally do it by fasting and praying. Exactly. You know, there are all sorts of techniques for entering al- an altered state. That's essentially how we do it. fly into yeah. the other world. So, yeah. you know... I think you pays your money, you take your choice on that one. So I, I wouldn't, I would hesitate to assert that, you know, human culture began one way or another, you know. Well, I tend to agree. But I wouldn't rule out, I wouldn't rule out drugs. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a controversial notion that, that the Greek mysteries were, for instance, were sort of fueled by, um, the, um, fly agaric mushroom, you know. Mm which grows under birch trees in Europe, and uh, that has hallucinogenic properties. But it's not proven. But, um, you know, it's a good idea, and it, it may have some truth in it. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the, the two shamans I knew best in days of yore, were one was from Australia, an Aboriginal elder, and another one was a Cree elder from Quebec. And neither of them, and I was fortunate to be, even for that they didn't even talk to me, you know, that they're very often are very wary of outsiders. And uh, the, not, neither of them in all our long conversations ever mentioned hallucinogenics, at, le- at least not, not as a door to what they do. They themselves simply had done it so often as far as using the, the power of uh, what we, we might say traversing the boundaries of alternate realities or parallel worlds that they simply could almost do it at will. And yeah, um, sure. so, so that's essentially when so I suppose the, the tradition varies. Um, what does all this do to the scientific method that we cherish so dearly? What does it do? Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, I mean, I wouldn't be against science. You know, I've, I'm reasonable. No, no, nor are we. I have reason to be grateful to it in many, many ways. Sure. And so on. But, um, you know, but, but I think in many ways... Um, 
you, you, science is the trouble is the trouble with science is is that it it goes beyond its remit. You know, it, yes. it tries to. It's okay when it stays science, but when it becomes scientism, it becomes an ideology. I think which goes goes too far. And frankly, pokes its nose into things which don't concern it. And um, I think its besetting sin is is that of literalism. It takes everything literally. Um, and so, it, you know, if if for instance you say, oh well, you know, the daimons exist in this world, you know, in this strange paradoxical form they'll say well you know bring me the proof and you can't you know and there are all kinds of all kinds of things which just can't be proved according to its reductive method but the imaginative world is is a real world you know when i when i use the word imagination i don't use it in in the way it's now used now uh it's now used because we now think of it as a kind of um oh just something a, a faculty that that creative children have or else a way of summoning up objects into our minds which aren't present to our senses or something like that but to the romantics it was a whole realm completely separate from us um it was autonomous it had its own laws and it was dynamic and vital and what it did was generate images it generated what jung called archetypes or what the greeks called gods you know, it, it, and these interact in the archetypal stories of the soul, which we call myths, and so on. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, myths have an incalculable importance, that they are the true stories of the soul, and that there are perhaps, you know, a limited number of them, and that we go on telling those stories over and over again, um, and that even science has stories of a kind, you know, but in a sense, science is also underwritten by myth, but what it does is it takes its myth literally. Yes. And claims that yes. they're fact, but um, they're not necessarily fact, you know, that we live in a world of myths and stories, um, and we choose to take some literally and some not, but really there are no untrue stories. No, that's true. stories are true in some sense. We often refer to, at least in my last book, I referred to myth and folklore as the the vessel of the memory of the human race. Uh, yes. To speak with with any student of folklore, the, they will inevitably tell you that, that there was some basis, even the silliest legend. Um, and, and Ben and I are often we've done several shows on fairies and little people and all this stuff. And you know, it's it's the word fairy. That, that that invites disbelief, but the actual reality could could be something entirely different. So but the thing is, where did that disbelief come from? Well, exactly. Oh, what do you mean? Where did the legend come from? No, well, the disbelief of said legend. Oh, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, yeah, per- yeah. perhaps uh, Patrick has a thought on that. Why the hostility? Sorry, I couldn't hear you there. Oh no, we're, uh, Ben was uh, suggesting that uh, that what's the reason for the hostility to words like? fairy or 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 some of the concepts that are associated with it even though they may they may certainly have reality in the human memory yeah it's it's hard to know what happened you know it, it definitely they definitely get knocked on the head at a very specific point in history around the time of descartes oh there he and, is again uh, and uh and uh, there was a philosopher called um hobbes thomas hobbes sure oh, yeah. thomas you know hobbes. hobbes he wrote leviathan and at the end of that book there's this extraordinary diatribe against against popular belief in 
<laughs> he says, we're just not having all these fairies and gnomes and goblins and hobgoblins and boggarts and shrikes and trashies and, you know, and he runs through all these, you know, he said, these, this is just superstition that our nursemaids tell us to frighten us, you know. But he doesn't reason about it, and he is the master of, of the logical system. He just kind of slams his fist on the table and says, we're not having it. And, and I, think, I think, in a way, the whole of Europe got, got too infested by these daimones, you know, that they were kind of, they did become slightly oppressive, so that suddenly the scientific view seemed like a fresh of fresh air, fresh air. You know, that was the cutting-edge thing to be. And, yeah. and even you and I, Paul, would probably be scientists in those days because it could be very oppressive, the idea that the whole of nature is just full of... As some tribes suffer, they suffer from this, you know, that, that the, whole of the, the whole of the wilderness around them is full of spirits of ancestors or unruly demons or taboos or ghosts or evil spirits. You know, you just get oppressed. Mm -hmm. So I think it was just a kind of a change in consciousness. But now we've taken that too far and, and outlawed them altogether. Exactly. But of course you can't outlaw them. You can't outlaw them. But they're immortal, so they come back, you know. They came back in the, the great craze for spiritualism in Victorian times. Well, you know, did they, they ever, yes. Well, we're going to take... Out of, sorry. No, I said we're going to need to take a commercial break right now. But we'll be okay. right back. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and ONWorldwide.com in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our guest, Patrick Harper. Stay with us. Curious about what's ahead for you in 2012? Guess. Or you can get a personalized astrological chart, setting you in the right direction, helping you to make those important decisions and choices. Fulfill your ambitions and achieve your goals. Move forward with confidence into the future this year, learning how to handle the new long-term planetary trends influencing your daily life. Money, health, job, your relationships, all included. Call me at 401-333-4048 for information on getting your chart or having a yearly update on a chart I've previously done for you. Put the spotlight on the future. Be a winner, not a warrior. Contrary to rumors you've been hearing about the world coming to an end in 2012, if it should, I'll give you a full refund. That's how sure I am it's not going to happen. I'm also available for private parties and speaking engagements. Call me, 333-4048. Well, there you have it, folks. I also wanted to remind you about the Blackstone Valley Tourism Council, our local... Uh, people who are working very hard to uh, build up the tourism in the Blackstone Valley. Check it out online, tour, uh, Black, tourblackstone.com. Wonderful group of folks led by uh, Bob Millington and, of course, our own Dave Balfour from the station uh, is the uh, head of the board. Uh, I serve on the board myself, and we uh, there's a lot going on in the Blackstone Valley. Take advantage of it. It's a wonderful place to live, to work, and to be. Okay, let's get back to our subject here and our guest, Patrick Harper, uh, British author par excellence, and uh, we're talking about really the, the history of human imagination, I suppose, the imagination as something very, very real, not something ethereal. So uh, let's get a little deeper into this, uh, Patrick. In yep. your study of this subject, of, of the human experience of the daemonic in, in, in the positive sense of the word have you noticed patterns cycles in the sense of certain periods in that 
reality end, certain periods begin. Now, you've mentioned historical cycles of belief and disbelief and uh, different interpretations, but what about among the daemons, so to speak, themselves? Have you noticed in those worlds patterns and cycles that might affect ours? I know it's a funny question, but... Well, you know, it's very hard to pin them down. Uh, they are they are shape-shifting, so they shape-shift in themselves. So I think you could make a good case for... Um, for um, you know the um, the the aliens from outer space being you know an, a shape shifted version of the old fairies. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think, and uh, you know, it's interesting that they're kind of um, they're kind of symmetrical with each other. You know, there's amongst the folklorists, there's this belief that the fairies, but whenever they ask people about fairies, they say, "Oh no, nobody believes them anymore." You know. And that's part of the tradition itself, um, that the monks in 6th century Ireland were being told that no one believes them anymore, you know, and people in the 15th century were being told that no one believes them anymore. And then, you know, researchers in the 20th century were told that no one believes them anymore. But they, they still persist. People still do believe in them. So in a sense, they're, you know, they're going, going, but never gone. Yes. And, and this has a kind of, this has a kind of inversion in the in the myth of the of the alien invasion, which is always coming, coming, but never here. You know that they that well, they've kind of they've maybe, kind maybe of not. Yeah. What? Maybe, maybe not. Well, maybe, maybe <laughs> not. Yes. Okay. Uh, right, yeah. Okay. I'll gi- I'll give you that one. But uh, <laughs> but they the demons like to shape shift historically. You know, if you if if. If you drive them out of one place, they'll reappear in another. Mm-hmm. So if you drive them out of nature, as happened in the 17th century, then they, it was then that, it's then that they take refuge in the human mind itself, because Descartes divided the world into two, into the subject and the object, into us and the world. Mm-hmm. And if the daemons weren't allowed in the world, they had to, they had to hide it behind us. They, they hid behind our consciousness. In other words, they hid in the unconscious. But I would go further, I would say they didn't so much hide in the unconscious as form the unconscious, because we had no no notion of an unconscious before the 17th century. Yes. And they lay there until they were, you know, dug up, until they made themselves heard, really, you know, at the turn of the, uh, you know, around 1900, when psychology was discovered. It was discovered because the demons were crying out again with alien voices from the couches of the psychoanalysts, and and that's where they were, and mm-hmm. they and they cried out with completely autonomous voices. So they became complexes and archetypes of the unconscious. I would also argue that that, that they um that they became the subatomic particles. I mean, I I think that if you want to describe what a demon's like. You couldn't do better than describe an electron, you know, which is both there and not there, which is both material and yet energy, which is both wave and particle, which is highly elusive, fast-moving, shape-shifting, strange. It behaves like, they all behave like fairies, and, and the deeper we go into matter, the more demonic the world seems, you know, the more outrageous it is. The fairy stories of science are far more outrageous than than, than uh, any folklore. I've always thought of particle physics on that level as 
an icon, as it were, of the subconscious? I'm so, sorry, could you say again? Say, I've, I've always rather thought of the, of the, uh, subatomic world uh the quantum world as as an icon so to speak of the imagination or yes. of, of rea- yeah uh, of reality and and um you've just sort of uh, confirmed that in a sense yes that's right uh, you know if, if you if you look at things like black holes no matter what, whatever i'm not going to uh, the other end of the scale to the, the very big not the very small but mm. You know, they read like, you know, the, the, the versions of space that the cosmologists give us read like fairy tales. You know, they're full of strange ogres and strange other worlds where time goes backwards and where, you know, where there is a world of dark matter and so on threatening us, a bit like Jung's shadow. You know, Indeed, the idea yes. that we, that we, what is unknown in the unconscious projects itself onto the outside world and becomes a sort of dark patch in the universe and in this case 80% of the unknown universe whatever it is Indeed. So, um, I do see the universe as a kind of uh, as an imaginative construct you know we get the universe that we that we deserve really. and <laughs> Edmund Burke of, of physics yeah Go and, it's, and it's not too good at the moment and it's, it's interesting too that the that the cosmologists always describe the universe as hostile but this, of course, is something that no inanimate universe could ever be. You know, that, that demonic language creeps back in through the back door without them being aware of it. Perhaps it is that um, we we fear the uh, demonic or the unknown, and so we we fear it because we can't control it. Would you um, Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, I, I think we. I think that. That's certainly the case because you know if you if you're very rationalistic, I mean it's a kind of a nightmare. Yeah, and uh, and also one of one of our modern diseases is is that we think everything's a problem that we've got to solve. You know, whenever anything strange or paranormal occurs, experts are always put up to explain it away. But um, you know, it never really works too well. But we've lost the idea that some things are just mysteries. You know, and that the whole point of mysteries is you don't try and kind of solve them. You enter into them, and you're transformed in the process. The whole point is of a mystery is is that you have to do away with your rational ego, which uh, is so controlling, and like open that. yourself up to a larger, you know, more expanded consciousness of the world. Th- that's an experience I had early on in my own work. I started paranormal research. 42 years ago when I was a student for the priesthood and you can now net with all the preconceptions that came with that sort of education yes. and uh, of course my background being theological and philosophical and I quickly learned in the trenches when I actually confronted these things that none of that was good enough uh, the theology wasn't good enough the, the spiritualist approach as I said previously was not good enough there was much more to this so over the decades, uh, and now Ben shares this with me, we have come to the conclusion that we are literally swimming in the human unconscious, uh, the subconscious being made of infinite numbers of worlds and possibilities and the reality we've discussed this evening and uh, in which we are intimately involved. And I think that that's, that's, that's a critical point, that this isn't something outside of ourselves, 
it's within us and we're within it. Yes, I quite agree. I couldn't agree more, really. And indeed, I mean, the idea that the imagination and the unconscious are within us is an eccentric idea. You know, that's completely modern. Mm. In the olden days, you know, it was just thought to be an other world that was somehow around us or parallel to us or just out, out of reach, you know. And I'd rather prefer that idea than the idea of the unconscious. You know, I think we should perhaps disinter it a bit. Yes. Let's go a little bit further with this. We, we've got a little time here. There are people who often will write to us and say, I really don't feel that we belong here or, or that I belong here. There's a certain sense of detachment. Now, of course, in, in some, some of these, one, one can detect the, the textbook definitions of uh, possible schizophrenia or whatever, the sense of detachment and uh, alienation and all this business. But, but it, it, there are some who, and the majority seem, seem to be very sincere and, and seem to have an approach that uh, lends credibility to what they're saying. There, there seems to be some school of thought here and there that this, our species as it exists, today is not even perhaps indigenous to this planet. And what I'm getting at uh, is, is it possible that in the development of the human tapestry of, of our history, in, in, in our, our origins, uh, in, in the fact that the human genome has 223 um, genes that shouldn't be there, if evolution, as we understand it, is correct. I mean, does all this lend itself to the possibility of outside interference, whether from aliens from other planets or, more likely, in my opinion, d- demonic uh, realities from within us and outside us, you know, having actual physical uh, effects upon our history? I mean, you see what I'm getting at here? What's your opinion on that? Yes, yes. Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very... Um, loath to be a literalist in these things, yes. you know, in, in, in any field. So, you know, I would, I wouldn't rule anything out, but I, you know, I mean, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even take the theory of evolution literally. Mm. You know, I think it's a myth. Uh, and, uh, you know, it may be a fact as well, but, well, that's another story. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, uh, I think the, the sense that, um, the sense that we don't, that we're from somewhere else is is a very common idea. I mean, I mean, I think it's. I think we all have that kind of inkling in our childhood that that we're that you know that we're not that our parents aren't our real parents, or, or that we were left there by gypsies, or that we're really princes and princesses. <laughs> you know, it's a kind of a fantasy we all have, and I would kind of tend to read this as. That dim knowledge that we carry into the world from, because we've come from, because according to Plato, we've, we've come from the immortal world to which we return at death, um, that we carry with us a remembrance of that immortal world, that we know that we are immortals and that our stay on earth is only a temporary one because we're going to return to the great whatever, the great soul of the world or to God or, or whatever you'd like to call it. You know, and this this stay on earth is a, is a brief sojourn that we make here, and so there is always a part of us, the immortal part of us, will always feel that homesickness for somewhere else, for a more perfect eternal world. You know, and will we'll not feel that it is that it belongs on this earth. 
you know, that it will feel that it belongs somewhere else and somewhere better. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? It does, it does. And that all, all kind of sort of factual beliefs that we come from other planets is a kind of literalization of that ageless yearning for, for the other world and for the great imaginative riches which, which that holds. Now, there are a lot of people listening to this show right now who are stuck in traffic in one of the cities around here or, or just uh, maybe tuning in for the first time. Or whatever. How, does, how does one, in all practicality, get beyond all that? How does one get, one get beyond the, the artificial daily lives we have created for ourselves to the spiritual richness that is implied in the vision we were talking about this evening? Well, I, I'm a great believer in... I mean, I think there's been too much, too much spirituality myself. Hmm. In fact, in my book about the soul, I make a very stern distinction between spirit and soul. That spirit is always trying to get away from the world and trying to transcend it and trying to meditate or detach itself or whatever. But soul isn't like that. A soul is more... Is interested in the downward path. It's inter- interested in the in the the labyrinth of the unconscious. It's interested in in the world itself. It it, it thinks that you know that the that soul is embedded in the world, and so it takes a poetic view. So mm-hmm. one shouldn't try and uh, transcend the world, but pay more attention to this world because one can see the eternal world through this world, if you like. I'm mean, the great. A great example of this is the, is William Blake, the romantic poet, who says, you know, to see heaven in a grain of sand. Mm-hmm. No, or is it, yeah, and eternity in a wild flower, something like that, you know. And that is the poetic route, that you pay minute attention to this world and lose yourself. Get rid of your ego cravings by attention to this world. Writing poetry and painting is, is a good idea for this, you know. And it's quite different from spiritual disciplines, which want to empty empty itself of images. From, but I prefer the way of going through images, using the images of the world to um, attain some kind of um, happy relationship with it. I like that. And chief, chief amongst that is the perception of, of beauty, you know, is always to be looking for beauty and to use one's imagination to the full rather than denying one's imagination denying the sensory world um i go into that in much more detail it's a very very proper uh yeah you're not asking easy questions paul these are very um fundamental things and um, that's what we do on this show i can't yeah it's great stuff but i i'm i can't i I don't know that i could say more than that you know soundbite well well as as cyril of alexandria once um cyprian of carthage once said um all theology or all, all intellect ends in silence eventually. So, but but, but you're, you you've been very extremely articulate. Uh, one of the, bringing up somebody, one of the fathers of the Eastern Church, uh, makes me think that perhaps um, Eastern Christianity is a far better reflection. You know, flawed as it may be, of much that you have described. Uh, there is the uh, despite the Greek influence on it. Philosophically, there is a, a, a true notion of the, the, the depth to which you have brought us to thinking about things like the world is what we make it. You know, total transformation, restoration of the 
icon of the, the well, in the best sense, the demonic, as we've discussed it this evening. Yes, yes. So that's it. I, I, I don't know anything about Eastern Orthodox Christianity, really, except that whenever I encounter it in a, in a glancing way, like going to Greece, I always think how fantastic it is, wonderful singing, yeah. and w wonderful icons, and this wonderful sense of of holiness and the transparency of holiness to this world, you know, which I agree, which seems to be a feature of their worship. Well, that, that's true, yeah, yeah. I was fortunate enough to study in one of their seminaries. Um, ironically, they're the ones who threw me out because they didn't like my paranormal work. But that was in, in the, uh, the age of the, the film of the, you know, The Exorcist, and people were all paranoid. But, but in any case, I, did, I was privileged enough to study in the seminary there, and it was, it's a real eye-opener from uh, many points of view. But um, certainly, uh, I, let's, we're coming down to the end of the, the show here, and, and it's been a tremendous conversation. Patrick, tell us about uh, your books, where people can get them, uh, your website, etc. Oh, sure. Um, yes. Um, yeah, my, web, my website is, uh, all my books are on it. It's, um, what is it? Um, uh, Pat, it's org. There you go. That's it. Uh, and I have to say that Harper is spelled H-A-R-P-U-R. Right. Which is um, it's not E-R, but U-R. And um, I, I think my m most of my, I think at least four of my books are av available in the States. Um, I've got a very nice publisher in the, in, over in Seattle who's, who did my book, Daimonic Reality, which mm -hmm. is the one which perhaps has most relevance to the paranormal. But my history of imagination is, I think, my my masterpiece, if I can use that word, with without sounding immodest, which took me 30 years to write. And then my latest book is this, The Secret Tradition of the Soul, which is all about the soul and uh, what happens to us when we die and things like that. Well, my certainly good. stuff for another show. Which well, is uh, yeah. Which is a whole a whole other. Ball game, I'm afraid. <laughs> Indeed. Well, we'll get into that in another show because we're definitely going to have you back. But okay, so one final question, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. This will take up the rest of the show. But um, have you yourself had any paranormal experiences? Oh, I wish I had. Um, I'm no. I'm, I'm not. I'm not a very psychic person. Um, although I had hopes for myself, since my grandmother was a very fine trance medium, and my my father, who wasn't at all fake, he was a hard-headed businessman. But he saw fairies twice in Ireland when he was a young man. So I had hopes, but I haven't seen anything apart from a couple of ghosts. And that's, okay. that's it. <laughs> well, our, our point of view on the paranormal is that it is nothing of the kind. It is every day. And I think very often when you uh, put your keys down, for example, and you turn around and they're not there, you know, you, well, you know, you find them somewhere else. You say, well, that's one of those things. We don't think about it, but... In our oh, experience, it's the, the nature, the Swiss cheese nature of the multiverse, so to speak, that we call paranormal, that these things happen all the time. And it's only when you get hit in the head by a dish thrown by a poltergeist that you notice it half the time. Yeah, I could do a whole program on, on, on keys going missing, yeah. my oh, mother should do that. It pic pixelation, and uh, she was a great authority on that. <laughs> Excellent. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And that, that, that opened the fabric and the nature of reality, which is... Um, which you can drop through, amazingly, and it's such a trivial thing, but it has so many important implications, I think. No, yeah. We do it all the time. Do you know yeah. Paul Dever, by any chance? Uh, well, I, I've, I've met Paul many years ago on 
watched it several occasions, but um, I'm an admirer of his work, yes. Yes, a certainly good friend of ours. And what are you working on next? What's your next project? Another book or...? Well, actually, I'm just finishing a, a, a book that's rather different. It, it's, a, it's a novel based on the life and work of Soren Kierkegaard. Really? The, the oh. Danish existential philosopher. It's like a kind of antidote to the paranormal, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we could a, use some of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the opposite. There, it's the spiritual end of things. It's sort of the soul thing, you know. I'm, yes. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get some holders in my life, Paul, but it's not easy. No, never. Being, is. a, being an obsessive maniac by nature, you know. Well, indeed. Well, Patrick, it's been an absolute delight to have you on. I hope it's the first of many visits. And, thank uh, you very th much. Thank you again for staying up so late. And uh, next time we have you on, I will have read hopefully all of your books, and, and uh, we, we can continue our discussion. But certainly, we've scratched the surface this evening, I hope, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you very much indeed, Paul. Very good. My pleasure. Bye now. Bye now. Bye. Patrick Harper, everyone. Okay. So I think we have time probably for one interesting email that uh, came in. How much time do we have? Uh, we have about... Five minutes. Okay. Uh, this is a little long, but it had to do with our guest from last week. Uh, why don't we perhaps begin? Oh, okay. And this is from, uh, she doesn't say where she's from, but her name is uh, Kathy. So. Okay, so Kathy writes, Hi, Paul and Ben. I heard your show with Jeff Belanger, and I must say, I find his attitude a little disturbing. Uh, a Ouija board is, a, a most, uh, def is most definitively not a toy. I like you uh, uh, that you I like you have had uh, contacted uh, the game company even if they never listen. I was hurt by a Ouija board when I was young. I believe it was a birthday present. Uh, eventually, someone, if uh, if I remember rightly, gave my mom some good information, and the thing was gotten rid of. I had opened up some doors and some uh, parasitical stuff got attracted to me and some pretty major uh quote lose your mind unquote sort of things occurred for quite a while along the lines of abduction i don't know uh what it is about the darned thing the ouija board or, or the darn thing the ouija board being the darned thing uh that has it uh that it has it caused so much trouble I might on occasion today uh, consult with a pendulum, but I would never uh, get near a Ouija board again. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, there's, okay. yeah, there's uh, there's a comment here. Uh, so back to Jeff, and we love Jeff. He he lives near here. Uh, I, we just don't agree on much. Um, he's the uh, proprietor of GhostVillage.com, and it sort of encourages people to get involved in uh, feral ghost hunting, as we were call we call it. And we think that's a very. I wasn't sure if you wanted me to read the rest of it. So yeah, well, we can. Uh, but she makes uh, some interesting points here. But uh, she does say that um, she agrees with us that that kids should not be getting involved in this, as he says. Uh, and he said, if, if he had experienced just 15 minutes of what I went through, I bet he might think differently, and I tend to agree. But anyway, that's just uh, a thought from a listener from last week's uh, show, and uh, you can take it for what it is. What it is, and uh, we tend to agree with it. But anyway, uh, so we want to point out certainly our uh, show website behindtheparanormal.com. Uh, you can buy my books on that site. You can subscribe to our newsletter. There are links to our guests' uh, websites, uh, including Patrick Harper's tonight. And there's information about uh, guests upcoming, guests in the past, and certainly a marvelous um, 
uh, resource, we hope, for our shows. Over 400, po- all, nearly 400 podcasts, all free, are available at that site. So many thanks to our producer, uh, young Ben himself here. It's me. Yep, and uh, doing a fine job here as our producer. And we'll see you next Monday, May 7th, here on WON, 1240 AM and onworldwide.com. When Ben and I will welcome prolific author, broadcaster, producer Paul McGuire to discuss cosmic warfare. Well, that sounds interesting. Mm. So on our regular CBS radio edition on Sunday, May 6th, in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Seattle, we'll be hosting the second of two panels with people uh, who have reported alien contact, uh, Tom Reed, Jesse Long, and Geraldine Stith. It was very interesting last evening. I thought it was really, uh, really something. Uh, Tom Reed and Jesse Long being abductees or reported abductees in uh, one of these alien situations, and Geraldine Stith being the daughter of a person who experienced something really strange in Kentucky in 1955. And we did a whole show on it, uh, the Hopkinsville, Kentucky incident, in which they're how they, they literally had a there was a UFO sighting. Uh, supposedly something landed in a nearby field, and they literally it's not funny, but I mean it can it can come across. Yeah, had sort of a, almost a home invasion by the, these little green little green guys and this everything, and they yeah. shot at them, and and the, the bullets had no effect, which is something we find interesting. But there were a whole bunch of uh, witnesses to that, and that was. Uh, Supposedly, what occurred with that? And what's interesting to me is that Tom and Jesse have both—they ha- both have like had similar experiences, but they both came up with two completely different outcomes. Well, they're, they're, Tom almost was very at home with it, and his son has all these remarkable abilities. Mm. And you're in touch with him, but I don't think you haven't quite connected yet, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's been weird. Like I, I've I've sent I've sent him an email, and then I guess it just never got there. Maybe I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. It's weird. I'll probably end up sending him another email soon. Yeah, I'd like to. You guys are almost the same age. It would be interesting to have your points yeah. of view. And uh, Tom himself, uh, very almost, uh, uh, very much at peace with what occurred to them. Uh, and their whole family was involved in these these abductions, supposedly. And then there's Jesse Long. Uh, his experience and his brothers were quite ter- well. They were, they were very similar, but in a way, they were they were terrified by what happened. And uh, there was. Um, uh, oh, I guess we're out of time. I'm yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Well, 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 we'll listen to the next week's CBS show, and we'll we'll, uh, we'll talk more about that. Anyway, I leave you this evening with a quote from dear old Dr. Seuss, the Theodore Seuss Geisel: uh, "Be who you are and say what you feel, because those who don't mind, those who mind don't matter, and those who matter don't mind." Thanks for sailing with us on a great cosmic journey, and we'll see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.